Welcome to the podcast, Now Listen to Me, Catawba Island fun facts, lore, anecdotes, and sometimes even a little history. This podcast is brought to you by the Catawba Island Historical Society. These stories and conversations, not necessarily 100% historically accurate, are told by lifelong Catawba Island resident Don Rhodes. Born in 1931, Don was an integral part of the community his entire life until he passed away at age 90 in 2021. Don's passion for preserving the artifacts and stories of Catawba Island led to establishing the Historical Society and the Catawba Island Museum. The trustees of the Historical Society share these stories with you, largely unedited for content, so you can get a glimpse of what it was like to sit with Don and hear the stories in his own words. These recorded stories are a complement to all the contributions Don made to the History Museum and the entire community. In Episode 7, Don Rhodes continues the second half of his presentation about the wine and peach industry on Catawba Island. He touches on so many things here, including fruit canning jars, stoneware jugs, prohibition, the Catawba Island Wine and Champagne Company, and more. The remainder of this talk had an audio issue, but it is still worth sharing if you decide you want to give it a listen. It will be shared in Episode 8, which will be released next week, along with Episode 9. Okay, so I've been talking a little bit about wine and a little bit about the peach industry. Well, just remember, grapes were here first, first on Kelly's Island, then they went to Putten Bay. By the 1850s, they were planting uh, grapes on, the, on Putten Bay. Now, by the 1850s, they were also planting small patches of grapes down on Catawba, normally on the point. Now, and I referenced a gentleman by the name of Scott. Who was Scott? If you have a boat, you'll see Scott Point, Scott's Reef. You see the name Scott off Catawba, off Mouse Island. Who was Scott? Well, on the Lake Erie Islands, before they were named, they were numbered one, two, three, four, five. And those islands were, were given to those folks that had bought those large land grants on the interior of Ohio on the lakefront that come up with short property. In this case, Edwards, Judge Edwards, he, he owned a large property along what is now Avon on the lake. Because of the irregularity of the coast, he was short property. He paid for so many acres, got so many. So they said, well, go ahead and take islands one, two, and three. That's South Bass, Middle Bass, and Sugar Islands. So they gave it to Edwards to make up. Now, Edwards himself never came out here. Okay, but he had agents that lived on Putten Bay or South Bass. Now, and Scott was about the fourth one. Now, when I said, remember I talked about Ira Dutcher moving the petition around to get her name changed from Van Rensselaer Township to Catawba Township, one of the caretakers 
in the 1840s on South Bass was Philip Van Rensselaer. So all the paper that was generated prior to Ottawa County becoming a county when we were still in Erie County. So it's his name that appeared on the paperwork because Edwards wanted to get that property on the map so he could get it sold and make a little money off of it. So that's where Van Rensselaer Township came from. Now, Scott also was a caretaker over there. And he got into a, 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 a row with Edwards of cost and pay, and all, there was always a problem with those accounts over there. But the point is, he moved to Catawba Point, hence the name Scott Point, Scott Harbor out there, Scott Ridge, Scott, Scott Reef, and then went on, to, went on to Sandusky. But that's where the name Scott come from. But he planted some of our first grapes. Those names do not appear into the county atlas. Why? Because when the county atlas came out, he was settled in Sandusky and never bought any additions of, uh, of the heart of Seattle. I just wanted to show you how, how all that works. So he gets very little credit, but it's his name that's on those, those reefs and some of those gullies out in the, in the western basin of Lake Erie. Again, an agent for Edwards over on South Bass. Okay, we got off the subject a little bit there, but I wanted to tell you about Scott Point. Now, let's look at some of these things up here because I don't know how much time we got going. We had three wineries on Catawba. This is a Benedict Furrier winery. I lived there for over 30 years. The cellars were 26 foot deep. It was on a corner of Northwest Catawba Road in Porter. Okay. Now, this is a widow's walk up here. Where This is a European tradition where you could go up in the top, look out. That's 17 acres, which is now a park was part of Furrier's Grape Vineyard. And it ran down almost to uh, the corner where the lane goes up to Sunnyside. In fact, it did. That lane that goes up to Sunnyside, the bread and breakfast up there, he owned, that was all grapes, except for that big pond in the center. Let me just tell you quick about those ponds, folks. When you drive down West Catawba Road and you see the Catawba Cliffs Beach Club, Orchard Isle, all those lakes and ponds with all those big boats, those are all collapsed solution dolomite caves. There's seven of them along there. When you get back into Colony Club, see those harbors? Those are all caves that collapsed thousands of years ago and filled with lake water. That's that's where they all come from. Anytime you see a depression out here on Catawba Island and Danbury, probably a cave that's collapsed. Where are, what are these caves? These caves are lenses or deposits of gypsum. Groundwater comes down, dissolves the gypsum, creates pressure, bulges it up to the point. Now we got a void, it gets too heavy, the ground collapses, we got a cave. That's what you see around West Catawba Road. Now, let's talk a little bit about, this guy came from Switzerland in 1858. 
His name was Benedict Furrier, started the winery across the street. The house burned, both these houses are all gone now, had the bottling works across the street. And where the 17 acres is, he also had a distillery. These large casks, when they would rack the wine off, it would get near the bottom. And in those days, they did not have filters that filtered the wine. They had what they called cold distillation. They would open the doors of the winery in the middle of the wintertime and let that cold air cause all those floating particles in there with the positive and negative charges and all that, and getting all that settled to the bottom. And then they would rack that off and distill it and sell that as a high wine. Some people said they called it bingo. Some people, I don't have any bottles at all from this, from this bottling works or this winery right here. Most of these bottles you see here are from the Danbury and, and a couple from Catawba. Uh, when you get up and leave, take a look at these labels. This label here is the Ohio Delaware wine. And I, and I, brought, I brought this because of the condition. These are all pre-World War II. They're, they're, they're very old. But this one here, let me just tell you a little bit about this style. This is what we call a Hockamer wine bottle, or we abbreviate it, we call it Hock, tall wine bottle. Hockamer is a region in northern Germany that produced a dry white wine. Now, when the Germans came over here in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, even in the 50s and later, they wanted to drink that wine that they were familiar with. So the bottle makers in Pittsburgh and Toledo, they produced the bottle that they were familiar with. In Europe, different varieties and styles of wine have different styles of bottles. Not so much in this country, but in Europe, this would have been a dry white wine in this long, tall bottle. And this is a, the Catawba. It's Bayview. It's Sandusky. Got a big eagle on it. Hard to find, folks, these bottles with labels. Hard to find. This one here, this is kind of unique. It's the only wine bottle. This is a vermouth bottle I've ever seen with a dark blue label on it or a light blue, blue and black. Doesn't, it doesn't show off very well. They just did not use dull colors and labels. I got bad arms, hard time moving. Okay, we talked. Listen here is a Duroy and Heinz. This winery got its start in Danbury, moved to Sandusky, built quite an extensive winery over there, then later on moved its office and headquarters to Cleveland. This particular winery, was noted for was was noted for its wines and its juice concentrates and its medicines. Now there is about a series of eight of those crockery bottles, and I had that series, but I only brought a couple of them because they last a long time. But that portion, those, those ceramic bottles, stoneware bottles, are very brittle, and most of them get broken over the years, so they're very hard to find. So Duray and Heinz is a Marblehead uh, Danbury winery. Now, here's an interesting bottle here. 
anything over a, a fifth or a quarter or a fifth, we call it a fifth. I guess we might call that, that's four fifths. But anyhow, the point is, over in Europe, they blew these very, hand blew these very large bottles, a series of them, and named them for Middle East kings. Middle East kings. And this large bottle here, I believe, is the largest. This set of bottles I have come out of Lanz's observatory, and they were hand blown for George Lanz in France. It takes the name of Methuselah. He is a very old Middle East king. King Methuselah, older than Methuselah, hence the size. Now, let's talk just a little bit about this. This is a champagne. I'll very briefly talk about this. I haven't mentioned that before. Champagne got its start in the Champagne region in about the 1630s over, over in France. Here's the thing. China started wine, Persia, Greeks, Romans, the Bible, the history's full, full of wine, all kinds of history. The drinking of the, the Romans were most famous because they attached their wines, to, they attached their wines to the trees. Prior to that, they let the vineyards on the ground. The Romans raised them up, made a better fruit. They did a lot of things they never get any credit for. But the point is, during the Dark Ages, all that technology was lost. I mean, completely lost. If it wasn't for the Catholic monasteries that had these monks that were still responsible for those vineyards that made their wines that they supplied for their, their food and their drink. Now, there was a, a, a friar named Friar John Pernam. They pronounce it just a little bit differently each, each, but he is the one who is credited <laughs> for bottling his gassy white wine early in the spring. Now, let me just digress for a second. I want to come down here. This is our first, our first fruit jar, or our first preserved jar, and I'll come back to this later. But the point is, I want to show you how it's open. When I talk about a top, this is a closure. This is the top. These are closures. You see how wide this closure is? It would be very difficult to make that absence of any air. You'd have to get a seal. What did they use for seals? Olive oil, uh, uh, some kinds of soft woods. But Friar Dom Pranam, he's the first one who come up with the idea of putting a cork a cork in the bottle. Now, he also, because of these bottles, kept gassing and blowing the corks out. He went to his glass maker friends and said, can you devise some way to keep that cork in there? And they said, well, we'll just put a little string of glass around the top so you can wire or tie that cork in. So it was Friar Don Pernam who not only come up and is given credit for developing what we now call champagne, but also the bottle and the cork. That's 1630. That's why France lays claim, and rightfully so, to the name of champagne. 
and you never see champagne stand by itself unless it's French. It's Ohio champagne, Michigan champagne, California champagne. They all recognize that international law. Champagne region of France is the only one that can use the word champagne by itself. And that region, by the way, is now done away with. So anyhow, there's that big bottle. That's the Methuselah. And they made them all different sizes. Wherever there was a Mideastal king by name, there's a bottle. The smallest one is the, um, and I can't think of that, the next size up from the fifth. This is a unique one here. This is Hummel. Hummel came from France, went to St. Louis, settled in Sandusky. Why did all these wineries settle in Sandusky? For a couple of reasons. They're, Sandusky's on a good, solid, 325-million-year-old Columbus limestone foundation. And when you dig down in that, you get excellent cellars. They had very good railroad communications. They had good communications with transportation of boats from the Lake Erie Islands. That was a disadvantage to the wine was on the Lake Erie Islands, was to pay for that transportation of, of the wine once made to the mainland. So a lot of those early vineyards over there just took the juice and took it to Sandusky to begin with. And the fermentation was done in Sandusky. Sandusky had 47 wineries between 1850 and 1920 when Prohibition came in. Kelly's Island had 12, Putin Bay had about nine, Catawba had three, okay. But after 19, 1920, when Prohibition came in, there was only two or three wineries in Sandusky, and they tried to live just on manufacture of sacramental wine. With the exclusion of George Lons over to Putin Bay, and his big market was grapes to Michigan, to Detroit, and to Cleveland. By that time, there were so many immigrants came over late, 1880s, 1890s, worked in the quarries and worked in all these different jobs that were now, ava now available. They needed something to drink from the old country, and here they were, couldn't get a glass of wine even in this country. So George Lons provided the juice. He also provided directions right along with the juice. If you don't follow these directions closely, you'll end up making wine and having to throw it away. So that's the kind of, if you knew, if you were lucky enough to know George Wands, and I did, he was quite a character, let me tell you. They don't make him that way anymore. But he, his winery survived all through the prohibition just by selling up unfermented grape juice. With the idea is, be careful with that unfermented grape juice. If you don't take care of it, it'll, it'll turn to wine. Okay, so George Lons was quite a character. Okay, so I'm moving right along here. Let me just talk a little bit about this. Of course, all you ladies, I brought this for you ladies. You ladies all know what this is. What is it? It's a canning jar. What kind of a canning jar? A ball or mason's jar, right? Well, let me just tell you a little bit about this. Mason was a tinner from New Jersey and only developed the thread closure. That's all he ever developed, was this closure. Never developed the rubber gasket, never developed the porcelain insert. He just developed the thread here. Now, I wanna tie this into our peach growing. Now, prior to this time, 
prior to this time. Let's go back, let's go back early, early. During the Napoleonic Wars, 1812, 18, in that period of time, when all that un, unsteadiness in Europe was going on, Napoleon was rampant over there with these moving armies. He had problem feeding them on the move. So he advertised, anybody that can perfect a way for me to preserve food so I can feed my armies, I will give them a reward of 12,000 francs. There was a confectioner in Paris by the name of Apri. Apri, I'm not a French guy, I can't pronounce it, but anyhow, he took these jars where he had preserved his heated and his candy type solutions. And he knew if he heated them and closed them, they wouldn't rot or ferment. So he perfected that a little more and then presented that to Napoleon and he won the 12,000 francs. So this is the first fruit jar. This is how the fruit jars were. And when I say this is the closure, this is the bottom. This is how we date the bottle. You see this open pontle down here? This means it was hand blown, mouth blown. The reason it's so green is because it's got a lot of iron oxide in it because the sand was taken from the foot of the mountains where the early glass works because that's where the trees were that supplied the fuel. It all ties in, folks. It all makes sense. Okay, the next jug we got here, that is the only jug that I know from Kelly's Island. Now, the reason you don't see these jugs that are embossed with the cobalt blue stencil, because of cost. A few years later, they could get the same jug and put a paper label on it. So that's how you find most of the jugs. The early jugs are stenciled, cobalt blue. Why do you find them cobalt blue? Because cobalt oxide was one of the few elements that don't run under elevated temperatures when you put a glaze on it over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, anytime you ladies and you guys see this brown up here, think of Albany slip. That's the color of a clay found in Albany, New York, on the riverbanks. Anytime you see that, you know it's after 1830. It's Albany slip. Now just remember, this is the fruit jar from 1800s, Napoleon's time. This is the fruit jars that you and I grew up with. There were 105 companies made Mason's jars. Now, let me just digress for a second. You see the size of this opening? Just fit our Alberta peach. How about that? Our Alberta peach, when cut in half, just fit in these jars. Boy, they can lay them up here and can them, and they just fit in these jars perfect. So what I'm trying to impress on you folks is our peach industry progressed right along with the canning jar. Once this canning jar was perfected, that you could heat and seal with a screw lid, much easier for the ladies of the house. So canning really took off, and so did the peach industry. And it did that until after World War II, when folks were introduced to the freezing houses, and the freezing coolers, and the freezing clubs, and then it went downhill after that. But the mason jar 
re-put the fruit business on the market. But we called it the mason jar only because he invented the closure. And there were 105 companies that actually produced this jar. Okay, I brought along, oh, here's one other thing that might be interesting. These are early peach baskets, by the way. I'll bet you, you'll, you might find one over in Danbury in somebody's attic, I'm not so sure. But I know in Catawba, you'll never find another one of these baskets. These are, these are old. There was so much fruit produced in this area that there was a basket factory in Elmore, Oak Harbor, and a very large one in Port Clinton. Now, the Elmer went out of business, the Port Clinton one burned, and when I was growing up, we had to go to Old Carver to buy our baskets. So these are old, now I don't know where these were made, but these are very, very old, before the turn of the century. This is kind of neat. This is a soft willow basket, but in the basket is a bottle of pure Ives wine. Remember I said the Catawba Island Wine and Champagne Company which is now known as the Mon Ami, which took its name in 1933. After Prohibition, there was a Hungarian come over from Sandusky by the name of Bon Baden that opened up the winery again, okay? And he took the name of Mon Ami. Now, you French-speaking people here, you'll know it has something to do with I love or love you or love me or something like that. I never can keep, my friend, there you go. I know it has something to do with, with love, but this is a bottle from one of the early, early periods that the Monami was actually producing wine, and it was called the Catawba Island Wine and Champagne Company. A lot of times around the holidays, wine and champagne was given away with these wicker baskets. Now, I remember I mentioned before we had filters, the micron filters that you could filter your wine, make your wine, pick your grapes in October, press your grapes, fermented, done by December, run it through a filter, and be drinking it in January, early wines. But in the old days, it took about maybe a couple of seasons to get that to filter where you had a good clear wine. So when they had these wines that still had some sediment in the bottoms, they would use these baskets so the bottle wouldn't get shaken around as much, you understand? So the sediment would be on the bottom or on the side and stay on the side. That was one of the benefits of giving somebody a bottle of wine in these baskets. You could be relatively sure the sediment would be stay where it belonged on the bottom. Now I went through some of this fast and I jumped around a lot. Uh, and Oh yeah, that's a, that's a, a picking sack. I haven't, picked, I haven't put one of these on in years. But anyhow, it goes around here. This comes up and ties on the back, on the side. This is where the audio quality changed for the worse during this talk. The rest of the presentation is still interesting and we have done our best to enhance the quality as much as we can. The remainder of this talk will be shared in episode eight to be released next week along with episode nine. Thank you for listening to Now Listen to Me, Catawba Island fun facts, lore, anecdotes, and sometimes even a little history, a production of the Catawba Island Historical Society. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at CatawbaIslandHistoricalSociety.com or come visit the Catawba Island History Museum in person, located in historic Union Chapel near the beautiful shores of Lake Erie in Ohio. Until next time, happy history!